Hey, hey, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Adam. And today we're going to talk about a game that we recently played, Anachrony. But before we do, I've got a Twitter poll for you, Adam. Okay. I made a statement on Twitter that my wife likes to play mid to heavyweight games, but hates learning new games. She'd rather keep playing games she already knows. Personally, I love it learning and exploring new games. So I asked the question, do you like learning new games? And the options I gave on this poll were, number one, love it. Number two, hate it. And number three, it's a necessary evil. How did you answer this question? I suspect that you may have known how I would answer this question. Maybe not. But I ended up going with necessary evil. You know, I like learning new games. I like playing new games. There's certain ways I like learning better than other ways. And there's certain games I like learning more than other games. So if the game catches me, is the theme catches me, if I'm if there's something that's familiar about the game to me or you know if it's totally foreign and it's going to twist my brain in knots, that's always a tough kind of sell for me. And it's nice to have someone who's played the game before and can teach it while you're there or in person or in video, Tim, you do that a lot. So lots of times that's really nice to have that extra kind of boost. But going straight from the rule book or sometimes even a video can be pretty tough for me. A lot of times I find the game doesn't quite make sense or I don't get that sense of flow from it until I start playing and seeing how the actual mechanisms tie into one another. And sometimes it doesn't happen until halfway through the first game or until the second game or until the 10th game. So learning new games can be a challenge for me. What about for you? I know you love learning new games, but do you enjoy it? Yeah, I guess the real answer here is it depends, and it depends on the game and how excited I am about it. So if it's a game that I'm excited about, that I've been looking forward to, that seems like it's going to be up my alley, then I do enjoy it. I love punching that game out of the box, follow the setup instructions in the rule book, and just trying to walk through and kind of figure out how it goes. And that can be really fun for me. There's a uh, balance, though, of like, if I... If I'm just spending a lot of time learning new games, it starts to feel like a chore. So if I'm doing it all the time, then it starts to be less fun. But if it's like, you know, I don't buy a lot of games. So if I'm if I'm like picking up a game once a month or a couple times a month, getting through that learning process can be really fun for me to just sit down and, and kind of get through it. How do you typically learn a new game? Do you bust out the rule book or do you watch a video or is it a combination? I, you know, it's a combination usually. I like to um, I like to set the game up from the rule book. And then sometimes I'll just start walking through the rule book. But if the rule book is not bringing me along, if I just don't feel like I'm grokking the rules from it, then I like to go and watch a how to play video or maybe even like a, uh, you know, a play like a part of a playthrough or something so I can really feel the flow of it. And then I'll go back and reference the rule book as I'm as I'm walking myself through it. I think that's partly partly what makes sometimes a, a game fun to learn, too, is that if I can sit down set the game up from the rule book and just like walk through the rule book and understand what's going on, then that's more enjoyable. But if, it, if a rule book is written poorly or maybe the game is just, it's got a weird flow to it or, you know, a weird rule set where I just can't pick it up by reading the rules, then that makes it more of a, a chore. Uh-huh. Like, wait a second, I got to step away from these components now, go watch a video, spend half an hour watching a video before I can even start interacting with it and then come back to it. That's frustrating and that makes it less fun. Do you ever feel like you have a game totally nailed, totally shacked? just from reading the rule book or watching a rules video are you like all right i got this down this is going to be easy i totally know how to play it yeah a lot of the time i do i think and you know i might have to go back and reference the rule book once or twice or say wait i forgot how that worked but yeah a lot of the time i'll, I'll finish 
I'll finish the way I'm learning it and then just be ready to sit down and play it. Not always. Yeah. Depends on the weight. That's interesting. Almost, almost always for me, even if it's a, a lightweight game, I might not totally get it from watching that video or reading the rule book. It's just the way my brain works. I have to go through the motions and figure out, okay, this piece is going to go here first. And then secondly, this whole phase is going to happen. Oh, and that's how this thing ties into this other thing. And that's when my brain starts really making those connections. So it's a lot of times it's just difficult for me. But when there is that rule book where you're like, oh, yeah, I understand what's happening here. I see how that's going to work out. That's such a good feeling. And I love that discovery process of when a game all comes together. So, yeah, sometimes it can feel like a chore. But when it all starts clicking is when you start, at least for me, I start getting those good feelings, those good vibes and starts to feel great. It's one of the things I love most about board games. Yeah, yeah, totally. So the, the way that other people answered, and there was a little bit of a surprise for me here. So 72% said they loved it. They love learning new games. Isn't that crazy? 0% said they hate it. 0%. So out of the 72 people that responded on this poll, nobody hates learning new games. And 28% said it was a necessary evil like you do. Now, I suspect that's because, you know, these are people following a board game podcast Twitter thing, right? They want to get exposed to new games or they wouldn't be listening to a board game podcast. They wouldn't be on board game Twitter. But like my wife, who I mentioned, you know, she enjoys playing games with me. She even about once a week, she's like, Timmy, you want to sit down and play a game tonight? But she never wants to pick up it. She never wants to learn a new game. Never. Yeah. Like she has no interest in it. She's like, we've got 20 games I know how to play here and I'm totally fine with them. I don't have any interest in playing a new game. So that's probably what's different between her and the people that responded to this poll. So. I think a lot of people don't like the process of learning the game, but they want to play new games. So that's why it's a necessary evil. One of the many things that excites me about Sarah is she is always willing to learn a new game and often asked to learn yeah. a new game. It's, it's pretty outstanding, pretty amazing. And she'll be like, give me that rule book. You're teaching it wrong. I, I need to learn this for myself because you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. So, so sometimes she'll just take charge and start running the show and it's fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yep. Very, uh, very lucky there. Well, anyway, so I did have a number of people that commented out here. So feel free if you don't follow us on Twitter, check us out at BG underscore hot takes and you can find us on Twitter. But a lot of people comment on these polls that I post. And if you want to be a part of this conversation every week, follow us, comment on the polls, uh, add to the conversation. All Games New and Old, which is David from, he's got a YouTube channel. I love his channel. It's hilarious. And he's a great guy to interact with. But he said, I love learning new games, though. Honestly, I just like to know how to play every game. Okay. Yeah, true. Absolutely true. You're right. Maybe it is a necessary evil. I just want to play new games. So <laughs> plug me into the matrix and download the entire board game instruction catalog into my brain. And there I'd you be go. happy with that. That's cool. Uh, Scott P, on the other hand, he said, I read rule books for games I don't even plan to buy. <laughs> so I guess he really <laughs> does love just learning new, new games. And Jeff Milton, uh, one of our regular listeners, said the same thing. I know how to play a pile of games. I haven't even gotten to the table yet. So I guess he just likes picking up new games as well. Brian Chandler, who always helpful here, he said, please define love, hate, and necessary, and game. Thanks. And he uh, Perfect answer, Brian. That is a gold <laughs> jewel of an answer right there. I love he he co-signed board game hot take listeners and co-hosts. So he <laughs> spoke for you there before you even had a chance to do it. Perfect. Um, yeah, anyway, so uh, feel free to follow us on Twitter if you want to keep up with these polls and be a part of them. Let's jump into Anachrony, but I do want to kind of set this episode up a little bit. You'll know it's just, it's just me and Adam tonight. Chris is traveling. He wasn't available to record with us, but we also had kind of a special situation that came up. If you don't know this, Adam's a commercial airline pilot, and he reached out to me late last week and just said, hey, Tim, 
I'm going to be in your town Tuesday morning to Tuesday evening. You available? So I took the day off work and we just got a bunch of games in. So we picked the game that we were most excited to talk about. That's Anachrony. That's what we're going to do our main review on today. But then in the on the table segment, we're also going to just touch on the four other games that we got a chance to play together so we can both give a little bit of input on those. And actually, I'll just mention that right now. So we're going to be talking about Praga Kaput Regni, Paladins of the West Kingdom, Rolling Realms, and Res Arcana as well. And then we also have a games, a couple of games that we're excited to talk about in future takes. Uh, these are games that are up on Kickstarter right now. Uh, the game I'm going to be talking about is Motor City. And Adam, what's the game you want to talk about tonight? I'm going to talk about Solar 175. Right on. So we'll cover those after we talk about Anachrony, but we're going to deep dive Anachrony a little bit. Excited to get into it. So here's a description of Anachrony. In Anachrony, it's the end of the 26th century and you're one of four remaining human groups that are barely surviving after a mysterious explosion wiped out most of the human population. You'll be trying to build up your own city to make sure you can continue to thrive when the next explosion comes and that last major human city is wiped out. You know that's going to happen because time rifts are occurring and a message from the future gives you this dire warning. But you can also exploit these time rifts to borrow critical resources from the future. The first four rounds of the game occur before the upcoming catastrophe where players will take turns putting workers in protective exosuits and sending them out to worker placement spaces in the capital city where they'll collect valuable resources from the mine, hire new workers, spend resources to build buildings in their own city, and research. As they build buildings in their city, they can alternatively use their workers in their own city to do important actions including traveling back in time to return resources that were borrowed in previous rounds, purifying water, and using that water to refresh your workers that were exhausted from their previous use. After the fourth round, the catastrophic event occurs and all of the capital city spaces are covered with tokens that will give a bonus when those spaces are used but then are unable to be used again. This is also the opportunity for your faction to execute their asymmetric evacuation plan, which can provide a lot of lucrative points if planned for properly. The game will end after all capital worker spots were used once each after the event or at the end of the seventh round of the game. Players will get additional points for the buildings they built and some competitive endgame goals, and will lose points for resources they couldn't return to the past. The player with the most points is the winner. I barely scratched the surface on all of the rules of Anachrony, but it should give you a glimpse into how the game plays for our discussion. Anachrony was designed by David Turksey, Richard Amon, and Victor Peter, and published by Mind Clash Games. Alright, so let's jump into the gameplay and mechanisms, and just to give you a little bit of background, basically about a year ago, Adam came out to Phoenix and hung out with me, and we busted out Anachrony for the first time. We learned it together. We got two games in that weekend. I played a few solo games, and then we played it at TimCon back in October with Steve and Chris. So Adam, this would be your fourth game of Anachrony that you played. I've played, I think, seven or eight games if you count my solo plays of it. So we got a little experience here. It's not a brand new one. And in fact, I would say that this was really fun for me because it was the first time I got to play the game without either learning it or teaching it to somebody in a multiplayer. So really got to focus on it. So let's jump into the mechanisms here. Adam, what stands out to you? What's the first thing you think about when you think of Anachrony? Well, just to add to that story first a little bit, Tim, I love the story of how this game went from my hands to your hands. I bought it in the Kickstarter. I was immediately overwhelmed by the size of the box and all the components. And Tim says, I'll, I'll take that off your hands. And I think the fact that you bought it from me has allowed me to play it more than I would have brought it to your place. We played it twice right there that first weekend about a year ago, like you said. You brought it to Palm Springs. And then again, here I am popping up in Phoenix and you have this awesome game. And I'm so happy we got to play it again. So the first thing that pops out is this is a, you know what, it's a worker placement, but it's almost equal parts city building 
as well, at least if you want to do well in this game. But yeah, to build that city on your personal player board, part of one of the actions is going out there, putting your worker out in a little build a building spot so you can go out there and you're developing your own personal player board. And that's what really clicked for me, Tim, was the importance of having all those buildings and accessibility to all these easy worker placement spots as the game goes on. So you don't have to spend as much on your mechs to get them out there on the board. And you can do all these actions that are promoting going back in time or gathering water. And so it's an, it's so much stuff, Tim. It's like worker placement, city builder, engine builder. And those three things, those are probably the main components. Those three things go in this kind of loop and it's just fantastic. So those are the kind of the three mechanisms that stand out for me. Yeah, and I think that's the key, right? So first of all, it's a very heavy um, worker placement game. So it, it is worker placement. When you start the first round, you're gonna, you know, there's a few phases you go through, but you're gonna select how many mechs you're gonna send out with your workers out to the main city and interact in a very traditional worker placement type of mechanism. Cause there's, a, there's you know, eight spots or, you know, eight spots that only one person can go to, maybe nine, and then a couple that multiple people can go to. And so if you go to a space, then somebody else can't get to it. This is a little different. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like intricacies here because one, if you go to one of these three spots in the main city, it's free to go there. You just get the benefit. But if the second person is going to go there, they have to pay something. Usually it's a, it's a water cost or there's some other cost to it. Uh, so there's there, every one of the worker placement spots works a little bit different there. And how quickly you go there is going to dictate what you have access to or how much it's going to cost you to go to. So that is a little bit of extra complexity that a normal worker placement game doesn't have. But then this adds another layer, and that is that the type of workers that you're going to send out there make a difference. Some spaces you can't even, like you can't use an administrator to do a science, um, what, what is that called, where you're uh, actually trying to create a breakthrough, right? What's it called? You're rolling a shape and you get some yeah, DNA right. or a microchip. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're actually doing. There. But whatever, the science space is where you're trying to create something, right? Like that one, you can't send an administrator to, you've got to send a scientist to or an engineer to. Um, or if you want to go and recruit some new workers, that space, the administrator can do it better than everybody else. The engineer, he could go there, but he can't even recruit the genius and the scientist can't do it at all. And then you go to like the building space and the engineer can do it, but he gets a discount on the building materials for it. So it's very important decisions about which work are you sending out there with your mech on top of the normal worker placement of like, which one do I take now to make sure that I get it before somebody else does. So lots of layers there, which I love about this game. And that's just starting with the basic worker placement premise of the game. Exactly. And it's just, it's a nice twist, a nice enhancement, a, a nice evolution of worker placement. So that's, that part is absolutely fantastic, Tim. I love it. Yeah. And, and then adding on to what you said, which is that when you're building spaces, one of the actions you can take is to actually build a building in your local city. So everybody has a player board. It's asymmetric. And there are four types of buildings you can build there. And each of the buildings has a different cost. And the, the first building you build is going to cost something. The next one's going to be a little bit more expensive. But then you also, be, in order to even get there, you have to collect certain types of resources to build that building. But once you've built a building, it now gives you a new worker placement space that's only available to you. And 
that really, it's an important part of the game, not only because those buildings have some points on them that are going to count towards your in-game score, but it's an important part of how you're going to get more efficient in this game and how you can get more done even if you're being blocked from other spaces out. And in fact, there's some things you can't even do without those spaces like traveling back in time, uh, which is a whole nother mechanism that this game adds into it. So that city building part of it is a huge fun piece and it's so variable. There's a huge stack of each of these different types of buildings you can get. So every time you're looking at this stack and there's usually two options available of each type to say, you know, which one is best for me right now? Which one do I do? I need lots of water. I better go get build a, a, a water spot or here's one that gives me great resources. So it's a, it's, it's a fun puzzle every single time I play this game. These buildings that you're building are great. You you're putting them on your player board, which is like your own personal city or hideout. I forget thematically exactly what it is, your, your refuge kind of space. Would you just say it's like a, a tableau yeah. in disguise? Are we really just tableau building here? Yeah, in a way it is. I mean, obviously you're, <clears throat> you're adding new worker spots, but then some of them just give you ongoing benefits. Some of them, most of them are worker placement spots. Some of them right. give you these little free actions you can take once per round, which don't require your workers, but kind of act in a, in a similar way. But yeah, I would definitely call that a tableau building. You're, you're kind of building up what you can do. You're developing it. So it feels a lot like a tableau builder. Right. And it's such a nice way of presenting it and doing it. And that's great. Another thing you mentioned, Tim, was the, so this kind of ties in the auction mechanism here. You're revealing these resources that you're going to gather from yourself from the future. So you can have them right now. If you don't go back and pay them back, you're going to have to pay a fine at the end of the game. But if you do go pay them back, you get some points for it. And it's just such a cool mechanism. Some people equate it to a loan. It just seems so much cooler than a loan to me. It's a loan where you pay it back and you get interest for paying it back. You don't have to pay interest. So I really like that that interactive part where you're dropping one, zero, one, or two of these different type of resources along with everybody else at the table in a blind sort of drop. And it can be exciting if you're if you know you drop zero and Tim drops two, he's going to be kind of hosed for a while. Or if you both drop one, it's kind of a sigh. You're both in it equally. So I love this getting these resources that you're going to have to pay it back at some point. I really started capitalizing on that mechanism and stopped trying to fight it and tried to work with it this game. And that felt quite nice. What do you think that little auction piece there, Tim? This game requires forward planning, right? We already talked about the complexity of the worker placement, having the right types of workers, going to the right space at the right time, building up your city to do that. But part of that forward planning is that you can optimize by getting a few extra resources, one or two extra resources at the beginning of the time. It might be an extra worker, an extra resource, an extra mech at the beginning of the round every time. So if you can kind of think about what you're trying to accomplish that round, hey, I really want to build this building and it requires a purple resource, but I can't, there's no purple resources available to get. How can I get that? Well, I can borrow it from the future. So it adds to your strategy of forward planning here, but then it adds the risk, as you mentioned, that if you reveal more of those um, you know, resources that you're borrowing from the future than somebody else, at the beginning of each round, for every era in the game, every, every time phase that you've borrowed more resources than somebody else, you're gonna roll these dice that could create what are those called? A paradox. A paradox, right? And the paradox is bad. It, it adds a little token to your board and eventually it's going to give you this negative building that blocks up your board and gives you negative points. So it's a little bit of a risk reward thing, but it's important to take advantage of that. But there's so much reward that also comes from just optimizing on it. You borrow something, you're giving yourself a little risk. But in the next round of the game, which is, represents a future era, you can set yourself up to travel back in time and pay that resource back. 
So as Adam mentioned, you get to get points for that. So that's cool. Thematically, it works, but it, that's where it feels like alone. Where the time travel actually makes more sense thematically, though, and actually feels like more than alone, is that there are these super buildings or super projects that only come up once per era. Only one person can build them, and they're very powerful effects. They're fairly expensive, but the only way you can build it is if you time travel back to where you're going to pay back those resources and you can build a super project from that era. And that's so cool to me. So like a lot of the time, I'll intentionally build, borrow resources because I know that I'm planning to go back and build that super project on a future round. And so I might as well go back and get the points for returning the resources. And so the way I play the game now is like I almost want to borrow something every round just so I have an opportunity to go back get the points for paying it back and building it, even though it adds a little bit of extra risk and something you have to plan for in future phases to make sure you have the opportunity to go back and the workers to go back and, and do that. And that's something in previous games I had been so hesitant or reluctant or I tried to fight it. I always wanted to figure out how to clear it out without actually going back there and paying it back and just accepting what the game wants me to do. I feel like I accepted what the game wants me to do. It wants me to borrow this stuff and then have to go back in time and pay it back because it gives you points for it and you can increase your engine with the stuff that you borrowed from yourself from the future so yeah you're amplifying the effects of those resources you have for now and then you can amplify your score by going back and paying them back it's just so cool and it clicked a lot for me this game so i felt super good about it now one thing i forgot to mention with the tableau building and kind of these buildings that you're building up is that it's really important to get more efficient over the course of the game because at some point in the game in a normal base game, it's after the fourth round, there's a big, I don't know what, event, a An big event, explosion yeah. that happens. Something that happens, it basically destroys the world. So you're now right after this, this post-apocalypse thing, and a lot of the city is getting destroyed. It's fallen apart. So all the worker spaces all of a sudden get more powerful, the ones that are out in the city, but each time someone uses it, it's gone. Nobody can use it again. At the beginning of the game, you have six mechs, so you can choose to spend some resources and send six out. But after that apocalypse, you can only send a max of four mechs out there. So you've got less mechs, the buildings are going to be more scarce, so you better be able to do more stuff within your own city. Um, and so that is a, adds a whole other layer of just the, the arc of this game, right? It, it feels very different once you get past that fourth round into the last one to three phases. What do you think about, Adam, the, you know, when you go to the capital city and there's those random tiles that come up, they're kind of, they give you a random bonus if you go on them, but then it's gone forever. How do you feel about that piece of the game, that mechanism? I think that adds a nice bit of variety you don't know what's going to happen i like this little random you don't know what's going to happen in these different spaces i think that's great otherwise it'd be super predictable and you know okay i know what's going to happen after this explosion it's not going to be that exciting but i love that there's these each worker space comes with its own new bonus maybe you can link some stuff together that you didn't think you'd have the possibility to do so it gets harder to put your mechs out there but the reward is a lot greater so i love how they put these new little tiles that are inclusive an extra bonus to your worker placement spot before you touch on that tim i want to talk about the escape plan this kind of goes hand in hand with that event at the beginning of the game you have an escape plan i think that's what it's called evacuation evacuation it tells you you need to accomplish this and you need to accomplish this and if you meet that criteria at or after this event happens you can send your worker up to the capital kind of activate your evacuation and you have a chance for some pretty decent chunk of points right there. 
So I really paid attention to that, and I really tried to capitalize on that for the first time. Also, <laughs> things just started to click for me this game. It felt great. So that escape plan going hand-in-hand hand with the event and those bonus for the worker placement spots. Tim, what's your take on all those? Yeah, it's cool. It's cool how all these things tie together, right? The whole idea that there's this big event that happens, and the evacuation and these spaces that are available all tie into the end game because after the event, after the apocalypse, there's three more rounds potentially. But as soon as all of the city tiles are gone, and in a two-player game, it's six city tiles that have these bonuses on them. In a three- and four-player game, I think it's nine. But as soon as those are all gone, then the game ends. So the game could end as quickly as the fifth round. In our experience, it's typically going to about the sixth round. We could go into the seventh. So it motivates, those bonuses motivate people to go out and, hey, even if I didn't really care about doing a, uh, you know, the science role, I'm going to go do it because I'm going to get an extra bonus for it. So it motivates the people to push the end game. But then that evacuation also motivates people because if you can take that last action space and get the game over around early, maybe you stop someone else from evacuating. So it's a very tense. And the, the evacuation plans are pretty interesting because you have to meet the first objective on the evacuation plan. And then you get extra points for doing the second objective on there. So, for example, the faction I played the other day when we played this, I had to have eight water when I wanted to do my evacuation. And I would get three points for that. It's not a big deal. But if I could do that, I would get the three points, but I would also get an extra five points for every super project I built over the course of the game. So I was motivated in that course. It gave me a little motivation throughout the game, but it also motivated me to make sure that I had a way to collect enough water in that last round and, and be in a place to do that, leave a worker, a, a mech open in that last round to be able to get out there and evacuate, but also to try to collect those super projects over the course of the game. And it's very asymmetric. Every faction, and depending on which character in the faction you play, you're going to get different objectives to do but it's pretty neat. And I've seen the game one when somebody couldn't even evacuate, but it's such a big pile of points, somewhere between like 10 to 20 points typically, that you're really motivated to, to shoot for it and, and try to make it happen. Here that evacuation plan too was kind of a nudge for strategy. For my faction, it was mm. build these three or four water buildings. Water, yeah. Yeah. Water and then once you have those water buildings complete, that allows you to get to the second phase of your evacuation plan. And that was for each gold cube resource and genius resource you get another handful three three or something points something like that so i was able to meet that first criteria and i let the game nudge me in order to get a bunch of points off that second criteria i think i got 12 points 15 points total for my evacuation plan which is a hefty chunk of points like you said 10 between 10 and 20 usually somewhere in that neighborhood if you're able to execute that so just fun a little bit of race element to do that evacuation plan there the second place person to do their plan gets a little fewer points and i don't know if it's the same for third place and fourth place with more players yeah it's uh in in a multiplayer game it's always the last person that evacuates get it gets a negative three points yeah so you're always motivated to not be the last person but of course in a two-player game right someone's got to be the last but Mm -hmm. yeah that's it's all really cool and one last thing on the mechanisms i want to mention and we'll tie this into the theme a little bit is that each of these factions are very asymmetric now there's an a side of your player board and a b side so if you play on the a side of the player boards they're all pretty much the same even though your character your faction character they have a different each character has kind of a different unique ability usually it's going to trigger once per round or you know might trigger on certain events so that's unique. But when you play in the B side of the um, of the player boards, there's a lot of little subtle differences that makes it very fun to play and puzzle out in a different way. For example, and this is something I didn't even mention, is that when you use workers here, 
they're tired. They fall asleep. So when you bring your workers back from the board, they go to the sleepy side of the board. And so in order to be able to use them again, you have to wake them up. And on a normal player board, on the A side of the player boards, you have two options to do that. You can either use a worker to do that and spend water. You give them water to nourish them and wake them up. Water is a challenging resource to get a lot of, so that's expensive to do. And typically if you would use a, I think it's an administrator, then that administrator gets to come back awake as well. Any other character you use, they would go asleep on, at the beginning of the next round. But you have a second option. Oh, and, and every time you do that, then you also move up this little track that's going to get you some bonus points in the game. But on the second option, you can use a free action. So you use this little token to represent a free action that will wake them up without spending any resources. But you go down that track, which is going to give you some negative points. And eventually, if you get to the bottom of the track and you do that, you're going to lose a work or you have to kill one off every time. So it's, a, it's an interesting decision. It's very challenging because, you, you know, maybe you've got two workers there. Do I want to spend an entire worker to just wake these guys up so I have more workers for that round? All that to be said is that if you go to the B side of the boards, they're all pretty different. Some of them, the, the little water track starts in different spaces. It costs different amounts of water. One of them has a free action to wake your, your workers up. So, and they all fit in thematically. Again, we'll get into that in the theme a little bit, but they all fit in thematically to the faction that you're playing and the little backstory that the faction has. So I like the little subtleties on the player boards. Each of the building types maybe cost a little bit different. The resources that you have to spend to get extra max, they may, they're a little bit different. So they're not drastic. It doesn't change the game rules, but they're little things you have to watch for and kind of optimize around to make your faction work really well. Yeah, Tim, that was the last mechanism I was going to bring up. The sleepy workers versus awake workers and how you have to pay some water typically to wake those guys back up if you want to gain points or you can anger them and lose points by just banging a trash can and waking them up unhappily. I, I think that's another nice little twist on worker placement. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go, let's jump into the theme and, and production here. And this is a game that you can hear us pretty hot on the mechanisms, right? We're talking about how cool some of these things are, how well they work. And yet somehow it's outshined by the production on this game and the theme on it. Now, I've only played this game with the deluxe Kickstarter infinity box with all the upgraded you know, like components. So I know there's a few different versions of this game you can play, but I can tell you without a doubt, no matter which version you play, this is a very well integrated and creative theme and beautiful artwork across all this stuff. Somebody took this story and really tied it into all the mechanisms. And the story is that... You're sometime in the future, and there was already a, some kind of uh, you know major world-changing event, uh, an apocalypse of some kind, and the world split. Factions have gone their own way. They've kind of evolved in their own their own way and kind of developed their own technologies and their own resources. But there is this big major world city, and it's starting to pull people back together. And that's where the general worker placement spaces are. But then there's this rift in time, and all of a sudden these time travel resources are starting to get sent back into your current time. So, and then we know that there's gonna be a big world-changing event in the future that's coming up because of this. So it's this, this whole huge time travel story, but the factions are, are just developed so colorful. They're, they're, they, you know, they all have these own, their own little personalities and they're all developed around different types of resources, but it's just beautiful. Like the artwork, all of that, just, just focusing on kind of the, the story and the, the visuals of it, it all works really well for me. What did you think, Adam, of the artwork and kind of the theme tie-in here? The more I look at this game and the more games I play, the more appreciative I am of Anachrony and its theme. It's so unique and it all fits together so well, Tim. 
you know, that you're borrowing stuff from the future. You know that there's going to be this cataclysmic event because time travel has happened and you're borrowing stuff from your future self and your future self is telling you, hey, there's going to be a, a huge strike of this apocalyptic event is going to happen. You better get ready for it. So just a cool plot for any kind of story or movie or whatever. In addition to that, you touched on it. The the factions all have this these little flares, the artwork on them. My guys were like these tree, these biological people. So water was essential to their whole survival and to to waking up those workers and to sending out those mechs. Everything costs a little extra water, but that's why they were nudging me to get these water buildings in my personal player board, my little tableau, so I'd have plenty of water on hand to make things happen. So that's just one example thematically of of how it all ties together so well. Tim, your, well, your faction was like the air, the flyer, the flyer guys? Yeah, they're... Um... <sighs> I'm not exactly sure. Well, I forget. I, there is actually this whole storybook that came with the Infinity Box, by the way, and it's beautiful and it's really cool stories. And I can't remember exactly what mine do, but mine are like the lion guys. And they're kind of the, they, yeah, they live in a city in the sky and they're the high technology and stuff like that. So I can't remember exactly how it ties into the mechanisms, but they're, it's beautiful artwork. They look cool. Like, you know, it, it, they feel very different from yours too. They feel different than your, yeah. your hippie guys or from the other, like the aquatic focus guys totally. or the, um, yep. or the, the cultists, which is the other base faction in the box. So it's just, they, they've, they've all got their own personalities. Let's talk about some of the other components. Yeah. I was, I was about to jump into the mechs. We never said how cool these mechs are. So your little workers are just cardboard shits and they're kind of a cool shape whatever and they all have different powers there's like you were saying some of it tim there's a a genius an administrator like a biologist and then there's an engineer so you can put them on your player board and that's cool but when you're going to send them out to the main city you put their worker in this exosuit these big mechs and and the slots there's a slot built into these mechs where this little thing slides in it's so satisfying so you slot those guys in then you put them out there on a space it's just cool right it's just cool it's very cool and they're 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 great sculpts each of them is each faction has their own sculpt of these big mechs now i think if you just buy an acrony you know the retail version of it the mechs are actually represented as as hexes hex cardboard shits so you just put your workers on the cardboard shits and send them out definitely not as cool functionally works just fine you can buy an upgrade pack to just get the mechs kind of like a little mini expansion i would absolutely do it in this case like this game is you know, it's it's a beautiful game, and and probably the base game, you're not going to feel the theme as much if you're just putting your guys on a little hex and sending it out to the space versus slotting it into one of these big mech suits and sending them out there. And you really you feel like right. It, it just it's so neat that it actually fits right in there. It has to be one of the most beloved components in any game. I think I've seen more of these painted up and taken taken care of beautifully, and people love to just show them off and how amazing. It's just such a cool component these mechs are fantastic it's funny i um you know i I recently commissioned somebody to paint my scythe character minis because it's the one game that i got so upgraded right but she had painted anachrony mechs as well and i was like i am really interested in doing that it's gonna be like 750 dollars to paint all the mechs so i think my mechs are always going to be gray unless i decide to paint them myself (laughs) at some point but the funny thing is is that that is not even my, my most beloved component in this game my most beloved component I know where you're going with this. <laughs> is unfortunately also another upgrade. It doesn't come in the base box, and I've never played without it. But the resource cubes in this game, 
I've got the metal resource cubes. And I think the original base game box is like plastic cubes, kind of terraforming Mars type I of think so. you know, clear acrylic yeah. cubes, which is fine. But printed on the board and, and on all the cards where it represents what the cards what the cubes do, it's four different colors, right? There are these purple ones, uh, gold, green, and silver. Yeah, gray, silver. right? Are the four different resources. But printed on the board, it shows these cubes and they all have kind of different designs etched into the sides of the cubes. So if you get the metal resources here, they not only are the color that matches the cubes, but they're also have the little designs etched in each of them that makes them a little bit different. Yeah, the texture on all of these is different. So if you can see and you just touched these different resources, you should be able to identify them just by touch without even looking at them. And I think that's just cool. They each have their own little different texture. It's such a nice little piece of design that they totally didn't have to do, but it's in there. Yeah, and there are these heavy, just, you know, and you're interacting with these resources all the time, but they're so satisfying to pick up. They're rare, they're hard to get, right? You like, you only have a few spaces you can pick up resources in a game. So they're valuable and they feel valuable, and the component makes them feel even more valuable. So mm -hmm. I love it. It's my favorite resource component of any game I've ever played, and just slightly beats out the really awesome mechs where the, the cardboard shits can ride into. Anything else you wanted to mention about the theme or. Or, or uh, components here. I don't think so. I think we touched on a bunch. It's a fantastic theme, unique theme, and it all fits well with the actions that you're doing in the game. And production is second to none. Mind Clash games. This is one of the top, if not the top, production in a board game I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, well, let's talk about um, our final question here, and that is, would you request to play this game again? Um, and, you know, kind of our final thoughts on it. So, Adam, why don't you start us off here? Yeah, so I saw this up on your shelf and I was like, oh, we got to get that to the table. So absolutely, anytime I have access to this, I'm going to be requesting it. And this game, this time, it kind of opened up and I started to see a lot of the options and things started to click for me. Probably said that before when we played it like that first or second time, but not really. Like I was, <laughs> a lot of times in these games, I feel like I'm just treading water, struggling to keep up with the game. This time I felt like I was ahead of the game and and knew what I wanted to do, knew where I was going, and had a plan going in. I had some missteps early on, but then I caught on with what I needed to do in ways to generate points, and I had plenty of resources the whole game. It felt so good. I do want to go back. I do want to do a little moment of the game. Tim, it was that last round. There was this, uh, what are those technologies called? The big buildings? The super, uh, super buildings or whatever, yeah. Yeah, the super tech super buildings. So I had this very low chance of going back in time, paying back my my debt for my little auction thing that I bid, my little uh, potential paradox. I did that. And I cleared up this building on my tableau so I'd have room for one of these super buildings. I got back. I had the resources I needed to buy the super building, except for one, I needed one of these little shape tokens. I needed like a, a square with a DNA on it or something like that. So I had a one in three chance of going for this as kind of my last action in the entire game. I was doing fine on points, but I was like, oh, maybe I can squeeze in a few more if I get this thing. So here we go, the big roll. Boom, it knocks off the side of the board. It comes back. There it is, the square, but no, the dice is tilting <laughs> over on its little rounded corner. Boop, and it drops to a circle or a triangle, <laughs> whatever. And we both would go, oh. It was just a fun, unnecessary, exciting moment. Roll this dice in kind of a Vegas-style event. I thought that was a nice touch to the end of a great game. Tim, would you request to play this one again? And what are kind of your overall thoughts here? Yeah, so I, um, when we talked about our top 10 games of all time last summer, and we got, you know, we'll be doing that again in a few months, 
this came up as my number one. I had such a fun time just exploring and learning this game. Now, I've played it a bunch more times since then. Again, you know, probably four or five more times, a couple times multiplayer. It is such a heavy, puzzly game. It, it doesn't sound like it, right? It's a worker placement game. It's got some pretty basic mechanisms. But I'll tell you about an event that, that like uh, an instance of this particular game that I ran into, and this always happens to me in this game, where, you know, I had like two chemists and an engineer and a, an administrator in my group there, and I needed to get to a point where I was going to go buy one of these supercomputers. So I had to collect the resources, then send somebody on my tra- my time travel building, send the guy back in time, return the resource, and then have enough to buy this supercomputer. So I do all this stuff, I get to my turn, I put my engineer out on the building space so I can build the supercomputer, and I realize that one of the resources I had to spend to buy it was to throw away a chemist. And instead of saving my chemist and using a different resource to do one of the other things, I spent both my chemists and I couldn't do it. And there's so much little intricate planning that you have to do to do this efficiently, right? You can play the game fairly easily, but to do it well, it's such a brain burn. It's so much thought. It's so much like, do I save an administrator to wake up my guy so I can do my other turns? Or do I risk the negative points? And many times I've done that where I've like, didn't plan right. So then I have to, I have to use a free action and waste points to, to wake somebody up. So all that being said, the game is a brain burn. And it is not something that I can feel like every week I want to go back and play. Because it is so much thought that goes into it so much work to just work the strategy. Now, this play of it was fantastic because it's the first time I got a chance to play the game without teaching it or without learning it on my own. And it was awesome. I just got to play the game and I didn't have to watch what everyone else was doing. I didn't have to watch what Adam was doing. I didn't have to remind him about anything. And it was, I always, every time I play this, I've been like, okay, you know what? I had a rough time with that because, because I was trying to watch somebody else's game. It was just as rough when I was just playing my own game. Like I still so many things to track and keep up with, which I like sometimes, but I don't like it all the time. So I am definitely going to be asking to play it again. This game is never going to leave my collection. It's a 10 in my Board Game Geek ratings because it's a game that I will always want to play and I think I'm always going to want to play it occasionally. I don't think it's going to stay at my number one spot in my top games of all time just because I don't want to play it all the time because it is such a heavy processing for me. But but absolutely love the game still. You touched on a couple of things I want to talk about. So you do have to be mentally prepared to play this game. It's going to fry your brain a little bit and it's going to be it's going to be a puzzler. You're going to be thinking about it long and hard. One of the things that is I don't know if it's a negative, it's one of the things I don't enjoy as much about the game is that action where you roll for these different shapes and the little icon that's going to be on the shape I had spent in my previous games I had kind of focused on that a little more and getting these super buildings that can be so frustrating Tim and I think you bumped into that here because you don't know it is random you have a one in three chance of getting the thing that you want so that means more often than not you're not going to get that resource that you need and usually for most of those buildings if you have enough these little shapes you're going to gather up enough so that you can buy one at some point or there's that set collection kind of scoring at the end for these but that part to me, I think that's the least fun part. And I'm glad it felt so good to not focus on that this game. And I think I think that's why this game had a lot better feel on my brain this time than in previous plays. I agree with you. And I think that that is the weakest part of the mechanisms of the base game. You know, they were trying to add something in there that felt like 
invention that felt like the randomness of creating of, of testing out theories and creating something but it it really does get in the way a little bit i have typically not focused on it too much and either now one of the reasons you do that is to build supercomputers and so that can be frustrating right. because you basically need either one of a specific type of resources or two different ones so it's always a little bit of a push your luck of if i go back now and i don't have these other two that will definitely build it then i have to get lucky and build the one, or, you know, pick up the one that might get it. So it's it's a push your luck thing, and it doesn't necessarily feel like it fits in this game. I I focused on a little bit more this this particular game because my faction gave me a bonus that let me spend some water at the end of the round and get a free one. So I was collecting a lot of these, and it leads to one other piece, and that is that if you collect them and you don't spend them, there is like a little bit of a, a set collection point benefit at the end of the game, and you know how I don't like set collection, <laughs> so that annoys me as well about it. All that said to be that there is an expansion that came out for this, the Fractures of Time expansion, which if you think the main game burns your brain, add this in and your brain is going to be exploding by the time you're done with it. It adds so many more puzzles. But the one thing that I think it really, really improves in the game is that it allows you to spend those little tokens, those science tokens, to... I forget all the terminology because it's been a while since we played it, but it basically lets you improve your player board. It gives you a more interesting use than just holding on to those for a couple points at the end of the game right. or you know, rolling for the right one for a supercomputer. So I think that they did fix that with the expansion, made it a, a more useful and, and interesting piece of the puzzle. But I, I totally agree with you, Adam. I think that is the one piece that doesn't quite fit as a, as a perfect part of this package. Yeah. I will say there are ways to mitigate that. I think one time I had some power, some faction that, that just let me pick the piece I wanted. It was a, I don't know if it was part of my tableau. It yeah. said, you don't even have to roll dice, just pick the one you want and you're done. You also mentioned the expansion, Tim. One of my other favorite components we talked about a little bit is those little, the purple battery charger things whatever they are those are cool they're these i don't know they're purple and black it's like this encased special material from that fractures of time expansion and you just use it on this whole separate board in this whole separate way and like you said it's that adds a lot more brain burn and a little bit more time to the game too we played that one time and it was fun but it it added a significant amount of time to the game. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it yesterday. Like we both love that expansion, but when we sat down to play, we're like, well, we could either play this in about two hours or we could have that expansion and play. Like this is the last game we're playing today. It's going to be like four hours. So we opted not to play right. with it. And I think that you kind of have to set aside an afternoon to just like relax and kind of play through that game if you want to play with it. But it is very cool. If you like this game and you want to, you know, kind of, blow it up a little bit you should definitely check that out yeah there's a whole bunch of other modules that came with this infinity box that i haven't dug into yet like like i've added some of the extra buildings and stuff like that but have not tried all these other little modules so i think the next time you and i would play this i would want to just pull in one of these other little modules that it's a little bit of difference to the gameplay without drastically changing it or drastically expanding the time with it yeah for sure so a lot to explore there that is our uh, impressions of anachrony we got a few other games we're going to talk about right after this.
All right, welcome back. So, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, the day that we played Anachrony, we also got to play four other games. So we're just gonna kind of run through those quickly since we both have a chance to talk about them. These were all games in my collection, so I've played them all at least once before. Um, but I think they were all new for, well, all but one of them was new for Adam. So we'll just kind of start with the beginning of the day. We kicked off the day. Uh, when, when Adam got there, I had two games set up on my table. So the two games that we had decided in advance to play. First one was Paladins of the West Kingdom. This is by Garfield Games, and um, Shem Phillips is the designer on this game. I think Sam, I think Sam McDonald was also the developer. Is that, that his name? Anyway, um, I'll, I'll look that up in a bit. But um, this is a game that um, I've played a couple times. I've been talking about. It. Adam didn't seem that interested in, so I've been harassing him about it a little bit. Be like, Adam, I, we gotta play this game. So it's like, okay, get it set up. We'll get it played. What do you think of Paladins of the West Kingdom? I loved it, Tim. I was skeptical at first. The artwork, I know a lot of people are big fans of the art, but for me, seeing the same art in like Paladins and Architects and in all these different games, it made it seem kind of cookie cutter. I was worried that, well, if I play one of these games, that's the same as any other of these games. But whatever, we jumped into Paladins, you had it all set up. I like this whole middle board of all these different spots and all these different characters that are out there you can recruit these guys to help you out you can attack these i don't know what they're called they're they're well i guess invaders they're invaders Invaders. okay yeah they're not paladins we're the paladins or we're managing paladins the theme was fun i got into it we were putting out these um the monks yeah putting out monks out there you had these green buildings what are those called workshops you could put out there to reduce the cost of a of a spot of an action so it was great. We touched on it before. You had compared this with Orlean, mm-hmm. Orleans, as Chris would say. And so what you're doing here is the first time I've played a game like this. You're kind of building towards an action. You have to put in like three workers to do an action, unless you're able to put those workshops and reduce. So that takes up one of the spaces. So you put a workshop in. Now you only have to pay two workers. You put another workshop in. Now this awesome action is only going to cost you one worker every time. The actions that you could take were cool. You could spend one worker to put a monk out there on the board. Then you could spend another worker to clear off that worker that let you put a monk out there on the board. So you could do that action again. And then you could do it again. And then you also have these paladins. I think they're the paladins that you choose that give you a bonus when you take certain actions. So you're kind of gearing that up. You have that evolving tactical puzzle that Tim really likes. And each round is different. Each round you're going to focus on something a little different to boost the way your little fiefdom or whatever it is, is running. And I loved this game, Tim. I thought I was just going to be like, meh. But uh, maybe my brain was just in the right side. I enjoyed every single game we played. Usually I'm like a sourpuss about some of this stuff, but (laughs) I had so much fun playing all these games. And I think kicking it off with Paladins was just a great way to jump into the day. Yeah, I love it. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed it ever since I discovered it. And this was my second, well, I guess it was my third Garfield games that I played, and I've enjoyed all of them. And and what's kind of neat about it is you're playing some of the games in the ser- in the this these series is that they tend to use, you know, kind of little tie-ins. Some of the mechanisms are slightly the same. The iconography tends to be the same, and so getting into it was really easy for me. But it felt so different from the other games in the series that I've played in, in any of their series that I played. 
And I even just recently got to play Architects of the West Kingdom, which was actually the, the game that came out before this, which is a little bit lighter game, and it's a little bit more straightforward. It's a worker placement game. Still loved it. It was fantastic. I, I'm just so hot on Shem Phillips and Sam McDonald as designers. I love what they're doing. So this was a great play. It was fun to play. This was my second play multiplayer because I played with Steve when he was in town a couple weeks ago and had a great time with that. You guys both killed me on it. I'm terrible at the game, obviously, but had a really fun time playing it. It's a game I'm excited to go back to again and again. I, you know, I felt like you kind of like figured out the puzzle the second you sat down and started going for a strategy and just killed me in it. And I was just like all over the place, just doing every little thing. And this is pro it's probably, I'll probably never be good at this game because I like doing every little thing, but it was, it was a blast. So one thing I was kind of keeping in my mind this weekend and something that started clicking my brain is a lot of these resource management games that give you tons and tons of options to do anything you want. If you don't focus on just a couple of things, and that's, I'm usually the same, Tim. Usually I want to jump around. I want to do this. Oh, that sounds cool. What if I do this? What if I do this? This weekend or that Tuesday, I just focused on, okay, I'm going to work just on this aspect and this fact. Otherwise, there's going to be too much stuff. I'm going to lose focus. I'm not going to know what I'm doing. And that seemed to work out pretty nicely, at least for the handful of games we were yeah. able to play. So just one last note on this is that we are actually going to get to play, we're going to play Wayfarers of the South Tigris, which is the first game in the next trilogy that Garpel Games is putting out that's kind of related. And it's going to use some of the same artwork and iconography, but a different set of mechanisms. I got a chance to watch a playthrough of this. Sam and Shem just put this out a couple days ago, so I watched it last night just to be prepped, kind of learn the game a little bit. And it looks so fun to me. It looks so exciting. So I cannot wait to play. We're going to be playing it next week. So the episode after this one, if everything goes smoothly should be should be featuring Wayfarers of the South Tigris. And then I think the Kickstarter comes out like a week after that. So look forward to that. I'm really excited to play it now. Adam, if you like Paladins, it's a totally different game set, but I think you'll dig uh, Wayfarers as well. Should be fun. Okay, cool. All right, so after Paladins of the West Kingdom, the second game that I had set up was a game that I didn't think Adam was going to like at all. This is Praga Kaput Regni by Vladimir Succi and his his publishing company, Delicious Games, but I think it's published in the United States by Rio Grande Games. Praga is a game that I talked about a little bit a few months back at the end of an episode. I played it once solo, and I was pretty meh on it. I didn't find it that exciting or fun, but I just picked it up, added it to my collection. So I said at the time, like, I'd like to play it again and see if I like it more after that. And I'll just say that I did like it more. After a second play, playing it with somebody else, I did enjoy it. When we finished that play, we'll talk about it in a second here, but when we finished that play, I said, I did like it more, but this is going to leave my collection. And then I thought about it for two more days and said, boy, I wish I was playing this again right now. And now it's gone back from my trade shelf back onto my main shelf. So I, I think I will be keeping this a little bit longer, at least trying a couple more plays of it. And I have some reasons to, to think that. But Adam, what do you think of Praga Kaput Ragni? This is the one that totally stunned me, Tim. I enjoyed it as well. I thought I was going to be pretty meh on it, but the more I thought about it, the more I had fun. It felt like, we talked about this during the game, it felt like almost sandboxy. You could kind of do so much stuff. You could focus on this, the new part of Praha. You could focus on Old Town Praha, building these buildings in there. The bridge, you could focus on the bridge. So I've been to Prague and I think that helped out a lot because I was like, oh, there's the cathedral. I walked up to that place at night and it was, it was beautiful. It was all lit up and it looked amazing. I've been across that bridge to get up to the cathedral. I stayed in Old Town Prague for 
three, four days. I kept looking for the clock. I didn't see the the clock. But the way you're choosing these little hexes and getting a little bonus, we got eggs in there. You're, one of the resources is windowsills. You have gold windowsills and white windowsills. So the game is just so quirky and you can tell it's just a tribute to... You told you were telling me Vladimir Suki's hometown hometown is Prague. It's just neat. You can tell all the love that he put into it. Mm-hmm. The components and player boards, I don't know, they're a little finicky with the way they kind of twist around and you have these little cubes that are in there and you're when you're collecting income, this little stick kind of bumps into these different cubes and you're pulling them off and this and that. So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the little quirks we were talking about that. I think there's tons and tons to explore. If you want to put in the time, you can kind of do whatever you want. I think there's multiple different strategies you can take. And I just had a nice mellow time playing. It's easy. Everything gets you a bonus. It's not too competition heavy. You're not in each other's face going for anything. It is really just kind of a tribute to Prague. So how did your thoughts change on this play of it, Tim? Or what changed in the two days post-play that you put it back on your keep shelf? Yeah, I think a couple things. One is that the first time I played it, I did suffer a little bit. We talked about at the beginning of the episode about the the learning of a game and how sometimes it can feel like a chore. And this happened to be a game that for some reason when I sat down to learn it, it just felt like a chore. But the reality is, is that the game is not that complicated. There are six actions you can take. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the action selection mechanism here because I think that's worth noting. But there's six types of actions you can take. But in reality, it's just three types of actions because three of the types of actions just let you build different buildings out of these this market. They all work pretty much the same way. They just get built in different places. Two of the actions just let you increase or use production on your player board, but they both work exactly the same way. And then the third action is the one that lets you build a bridge. And it's super simple. You just move a marker and you do what it says. So the actions are very simple here. And the first time I I played it and was learning it, it just felt like I was slogging through this rule book and not really grasping what the value is of doing these things. And I think that there's, I think that there's still, um, you know, maybe this may not be a game that sticks on around because I I still think that some of the effort you put into doing these things, it's still a point salad game where there's a lot of, iconography you have to sift through a lot of things you got to do and everybody's getting like three points a turn and it didn't feel like throughout the game it didn't feel like anyone was really doing anything drastic adam did end up like you know jumping ahead by like 20 points at the end of the game based on some of its end game scoring goals so there's some things to shoot for there i don't know if it's going to pay off but here's what i think i figured out one is that when i played it my first time in a solo game it's not a great solo game and i think because the the action selection mechanism was one of the biggest promises I had for it. It's this kind of cool thing where you've got these six tokens, they're all double-sided, and they're around this wheel. And so basically you pick one of the tokens off the wheel and you get the bonus that's adjacent to that on the wheel. So they're gonna shift, the bonuses are gonna shift all the time. So you're kind of getting an action and you're gonna get, get a little kind of side bonus. And then you rotate the wheel. And as the wheel goes up, if you take an action off, you're going to get some bonus points for it. And if the wheel, if you take from too far back in the wheel, then you're going to have to pay some resources, some gold for it. When you play the solo game, the uh, the solo player you're playing against, all it's really doing is just taking the one that's closest to the points. So it's always just taking the easiest one to get to. And so when I played it the first time, it, it didn't feel like that was actually an interesting choice. Now, when I played it with Adam and he won... I found that it was more interesting because sometimes you just really wanted to get the bonus or sometimes 
he would like, I really want this action. So he'd let it get higher. And okay, now I'm motivated to go and get the one with points on it. And I think this would actually be more interesting even in a three-player game, probably. I'd say that's probably the sweet spot for this game would be three players because that action selection would really get interesting where people are really jockeying for which action they want. Oh, crap, he took one of the two items that let me build a, a building in the city now i got to go all the way back at one gold and grab that one before somebody else does or it's going to be you know i'm going to lose the building i want so that was the first thing that i found more interesting in a two-player game that i did solo yeah let me jump in you touched on something tim like the teach here going back to the poll question when you were teaching this one to me i was like uh-oh this this is going to be brutal but then once we got into it and we got into the flow and it, you're right. You're just basically grabbing one of these things up and then doing one of those basically three different actions. Hearing the teach here just got me, you know, worried, immensely worried. But then once we started playing and you're like, Adam, all you have to do is pick which one of these little things you want to do. I was like, oh, that's well, that's easy. I can do that. And then you you just go from there. So but it's the fact that there's are so many different resources. And then you have this little thing on your, your little player, board, your own little personal six sided hex. And then you could do all these other weird little things if you want to do them, which kind of goes into that sandboxy feel for me that I got from it. But really, it's a pretty simple game with a lot of, at least the the base action is simple with a lot of accoutrement associated. Well, I think that's that's the second part that I was going to say that really turned me off on the first game is that there's loads of iconography, right? There's like three different types of buildings you can buy and each building you pick up has like six or seven icons on it you know there's the cost at the bottom and then there's you know the immediate benefit and then maybe there's like a a, you know one that lets you move up a track and so there's all this iconography on all these things and i didn't really think that it was worth all of the weight but i actually think that's where the game is because the game is pretty simple you're just picking up one of these three things but where you're going to win is if you can optimize and link those little icons together. You know, a lot of them are about like, if I pick up this one and I link this icon to another icon, I'm gonna get another bonus. And so that's where I think the game would really be fun. And I kind of, you know, got there in the last round of the last game where I'm just like, oh my God, I didn't, I never even hit one of these, a single one of these bonuses and they're all over the place. Well, maybe I should have been focusing on to say like that icon came up and it's gonna connect with my icon. I better make that my next action, even if I have to pay a couple gold for it and give Adam a better action next time, you know? And so that's where I think the interesting choices are coming from that I just completely missed on my first play and kind of figured out my second play. So when we got to the end of the this game, I was like, you know, okay, it was definitely more interesting, but still not sure if it was worth all the overhead. But as I thought about it the last couple of days, I'm like, there wasn't that much overhead. And now I just want to kind of focus yeah. on hitting those little, you know, the, the critical bonuses. Yeah. So... I'm excited to go back to it and try it a little bit more. And if, if it doesn't come back to the table in a few months, I'll probably cool on it and just sell it. But right now I kind of want to play it again. Yeah. What'd you think of the, you know, quick, what'd you think of the production here and the artwork? I'll say that it made me feel like I was visiting Prague again. It's a very busy board. It's eclectic. It's bohemian. There's a lot of stuff going on. Maybe just slightly below something like Rajas of the Ganges in terms of busyness on the actual game board Mm -hmm. what about you how'd the art land for you yeah so i think it was that was part of the barrier to entry too it just added to the the you know the difficulty of processing everything that was going on but once you kind of get used to it it's nice background i like the art i like the style of it right it does feel it feels like classic you know 
art from the from the the region that it's from and and the the era that this was a, when Prague was being built. So that was all cool. There's two. There's actually a couple things I hate. I hate about the production here. <laughs> But but I think Vladimir Suchi, this is a love letter to his hometown, right? And so he made some 3D components in this game that were made to represent the three most important monuments in Prague. The Hunger Wall, the Cathedral, and the Bridge, right? Those are famous parts of, of Prague that you can still visit and see today. And so he made them in these cardboard components. They're completely unnecessary. And the bridge, I don't mind. That's okay. It's it's fine. It just doesn't take up a lot of space. But the cathedral and the hunger wall are kind of make these like little stair step, almost look like bleachers in the back corner of the board. And all they do is get in the way. And they're annoying because you have to take them apart and put them together when you put them in the box and all that stuff. So I think he did it because he really wanted to make those a focus of the game. Now you can take those off the board in the exact same tracks are printed on the board so you can completely ignore them and i would never play with them again i hated those components and i think they just get in the way but i understand why he did it and i would just play without them and then they're not a problem otherwise i liked all the production i liked the the action selection wheel and how there's like a little cube that stops you when it's time to move to the next era that, that was a cute little mechanism i liked the player boards where your resource tracks were were little um wheels and then when you get to a certain spot it, a, a little cube blocks you and tells you you get a bonus and then you take the cube off i thought those were clever um, pieces i still think the iconography is a bit confusing a bit heavy and like the bridge the bridge action i don't even feel like that was that valuable to do you know obviously i think he just put it in there because he wanted to focus on the bridge yeah but taking the bridge action was basically like i get a i get a bonus resource this round you know and so that it just wasn't that interesting as a part of the game and, and this is where I think it's going to fall for me eventually, is that like the game that it reminded me the most of, which I think is going to surprise some people, was Castles of Burgundy. Because Castles of Burgundy is almost the same thing. You're pulling hexes of different types, putting them on your, lo on your local player board, and trying to get bonuses in a certain order, trying to focus on certain ones, getting upgrade tiles. And this is almost the same game with a whole bunch of added stuff going on. I don't think it pays off for it quite, so still probably is not going to become a favorite but i want to dig into it a little bit more and just explore that and see if it does because i could see you playing this a little bit more and it getting to where i am with castles of burgundy where everything just feels like a perfect fit of the puzzle and you just you know like okay i need to get that building right now i hope it comes back around to me so i can get it you know that type of that type of feeling intention for me i specifically think if you're in love with Prague and in love with resource management board games this game is probably perfect for you yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be tough, you know, is like you said, Tim, is the all the nuances and all the different rules, all the different things you can do. Is that going to be worth learning about all that for what you get out of this game? I don't know. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's move on. We've got two more quick games to talk about. We played second Rolling Realms. That's by Jamie Stegmeyer and Stonemeyer Games. Um, we just wanted a short break after playing those two heavier games in the morning. I was making lunch and Adam pulled Rolling Realms off my shelf. So yeah, I've played this game a few times, but this was your first play, Adam. What do you think of Rolling Realms? Man, it was tough, Tim. I thought it would be like a light, quick roll and write. But no, oh my gosh, there's there's so much stuff going on with just so few components. You have the two dice, you roll those out there. You got pumpkin hearts and coins that you have to manage these resources. And each one, if you have two or three, they give you some kind of bonus. And so you're writing all this stuff down. How can I organize this? Oh, if I add one or minus one from this number, how's that going to help me complete this little card over here? So there's so, just so much you can put together, so many permutations from two dice, three cards, and three resources. I thought it was really fun, but 
but pretty darn heavy for what I was hoping was more of a light filler. How are you feeling about Rolling Realms? This is your third, fourth play? Yeah, I think it's the same. I think that's actually the, the trick with it because it's, you know, I taught it to you and the, the thing is you play over three rounds and so you play three realms in each round and, and every realm has its own kind of unique mini game and rules that you have to teach. Mm-hmm. So it's a decent amount of work to just like get into each round of this game. You know, it's not even just like, hey, I'm going to teach you the rules and we're going to get started. It's like, here's the general rules, but now let me teach you three different mini games. Okay, then we finish that round. You finally got your head wrapped around it. Let's reset and teach you three new rules. So there is a weight to this game that I think, like, it's it's heavier than you're expecting, especially from the length of the game, which is a good thing and it's a bad thing. People that want to play a heavier game are probably looking for something that's a little bit longer, maybe something that's not quite so abstract. And then people that want to play a quick game, quick roll and write game with simple components, maybe you're not looking for something that's quite that heavy. So I, it, it's a tough one for me, to be honest. I have had a lot of fun with it. I had a good time playing it with you. But I don't know if I'm going to be asking for it frequently. So I don't know how much it's going to be coming out again. And I'll mention in our future takes about another roll and write game where I think is a better fit for me. But it does add a lot of variety. And I think it, it changes up every game. I'll be happy to play this one anytime. I'll see if it sticks around. But right now, I'm enjoying it, but a little hesitant on it. Yeah, I felt like you were maybe getting a little impatient with me, which I could see. I felt so dumbfounded by my choices here. What if you just had a 60 second timer? Flip it. You got 60 seconds to figure it out. Boom, next roll, 60 seconds to figure it out. I think something like that would make this game a lot lighter, a lot more fun, a lot more goofs, and just keep it breezy and moving right along. I don't know. Well, I think if you played it another time, you probably would kind of wrap your head around the the mechanisms, and it probably wouldn't feel as heavy to you. And you put, I didn't, I wasn't frustrated by your turns or anything like that. Okay. Um, You know, other than there's lots of games to play today, let's (laughs) let's get it moving. (laughs) Right. So I don't think that was really a problem for me, but I, I, you know, yeah, I think you probably were spending more time than I was, maybe just because I played it more than you have already. So kind right. of had internalized it a little bit. Sure. Yeah, let's let's turn it into a Pendulum, the roll and write game where you've you got go. a timer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One last game that we played, which we have played before. Uh, we, we both played on Board Game Arena before, but this was our first play together in person, and that was Res Arcana. This is a Tom, Tom Lehman game. What is it? You call it like a little engine builder game? Yeah, you're trying to create this little economic engine, a lot of resource management again. And it's a lot. Tom Lehman likes to pack a lot of these things into a little package, and he does another great job here. This is a game that I really, really love, but I don't know if it is worth... It's such simple little turns that you're taking every time. And here's what I think it is. I I think like if this game had a lot of actions that were instant actions, think of like Lost Ruins of Arnak, where, hey, I'm just going to get one resource. I'm going to discard this card, but I can keep taking my turn until I get a, take a bigger action. I think if this game had that, it would fix any concerns I have with it, because I do feel like it's weird that I'm like, okay, it's my turn. All right, I'm going to tap one thing and get a resource. Okay, now it's your turn. You know, and it's just like, there's, there's a very micro interactions and and they're not very interesting and then all of a sudden somebody will be like okay now i've built up these resources and i just bought this huge place of power which is huge and it's important but it feels like they should have differentiated a little bit before between some of the micro things that don't need a whole turn with all that being said it's such a beautiful production and i still like playing the game this is like not a rolling realms of like i'm not sure if i'm gonna like it i'm always gonna like the game I just I always feel a little awkward like teaching people and, and playing with people because I'm, I'm like, 
yeah, you just waited for me to, you know, discard a card and get two resources and, and you had to wait, you know, wait for me to do that, which it impacts you in no way. So it, it kind of feels a little weird in that way. I bet, again, this is a game with more familiarity. You're going to know exactly what you want to do. That draft at the beginning is going to give you a good idea of the cards you have in hand and how you're going to use them. So I think, again, with more familiarity, this one's going to get a lot quicker. But you're right, Tim. It's a series of these little, for me, it was a series of microtransactions. Oh, I get a blue and a green resource. Oh, okay, I'm going to tap this and attack your green resource. And now, oh, I can finally buy this giant card and put it in front of me. And that was cool. Uh, but now the game's over and yep. I lost so it's okay. I don't know. For me, it was just, it was okay. I still had a good time playing it. Components are beautiful. This one did make a big difference for me playing it in person rather than just on board game arena to see the dynamics of what's in your hand, what's in your discard pile and, and having those resources out there and being able to look across the table and see who's potentially going for what. I enjoyed it in person much more than Board Game Arena. And I think having played it in person, I'll probably enjoy it on Board Game Arena much more if we go back and play it. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, this is a game that I, I really still do love, even though it is a little quirky and weird. And I can't explain why, because every single time I played it, even on Board Game Arena, I felt the same way. I, I'm, it's going to stay in my collection. I wish I had a solo mode, because it feels like it'd be a perfect solo game, since so much of it is kind of solitaire anyway. Um, I think there's some fan-made ones. So I'm going to have to try that out at some point, because I feel like this would, would play great solo. But I love interacting. The cool thing about the game is that every round after you draft, your entire game is based around eight cards that you start with. And you start with three in your first hand, and then you're gonna you've got a deck of five that you're gonna draw from, and that's you've got to do your, you've got to build your whole engine out of those eight cards and interacting with some of the components in the middle of the board, and it's and because like now with both the expansions, I've got something like seventy cards in there. You're never gonna have the same combination of cards together, so it's just about putting them together in the right order. And I'm just I'm digging that little puzzle. So uh, it's a quirky game, but I still really really like this game. Let's talk about a couple games that we are interested in. These are games that are not even published yet or not available. So we're going to give our future takes on these. Adam, I'm going to start here. And the reason I'm going to start is because I think it's important. I want to set some context for why I'm talking about a Kickstarter game and, and how I talk about your Kickstarter game. Well, wait a minute. What, you're talking about a Kickstarter game, Tim? <laughs> well, that's my point. First of all, if you're a regular listener of the show, you know that I'm pretty down on crowdfunding games and Kickstarter and the idea of what you're going to get out of it. And I wanted to just add a little bit of detail and, and you know a little subtlety to my argument against Kickstarter and against crowdfunding games and say that I think I've been thinking about it a lot and realizing that I probably am t painting too broad of a brush on crowdfunding games, right? My biggest problem, to be honest, is just that the fact that a game is going to crowdfunding, many times it's not finished development, it's not completed, and so you're basically buying a product that doesn't exist yet, that hasn't been tested, and that nobody has actually played in its final form, and you know, you just have, you have really zero confidence, like you can't have any confidence level that it's going to be a good game. There's some indicators, there's some tips you can use. And I just see people, I, like, you know, we've been doing this podcast for a year and a half. I've been involved in board games for four and a half years or so, five years. And I've seen so many friends, people that we interact with on social media and stuff like that, that have bought games that they've never played, that nobody's played, and they're just mediocre. And there's just so many games being put out that are just mediocre and people are backing them because they got cool minis or because they got a cool artwork or because they seem cool, but you don't know anything about it. And I just, 
it really turns me off. There's like the consumerism of, of crowdfunding and Kickstarter and the FOMO. It really, really turns me off. But I do think that crowdfunding is a great way for a small publisher to get their games made or a designer who doesn't want to just give their game away and get some minor real royalties on it. That's cool when they can do it well, but there's probably a lot of games that shouldn't be out. They're probably not good enough to stand out against what else is out there. So it's a balance of like, well, how do you support those, you know, the smaller publishers, the smaller designers that are making cool projects? So for a lot of people, fine, you want to back a project because it looks cool to you or you think it's a cool project, or you want to make sure it gets made or you want to back a small indie publisher, that's fine, right? And I, so I, I want to step away from my stance of saying crowdfunding is bad for everybody. If you are enjoying it, Chris has talked about it, Adam, you've talked about it, you guys enjoy this. Um, I just, you know, I want to kind of set the message that like you don't have to own every hot new thing because it's probably going to be crap. So if you want to help somebody out, cool. If you want to take a risk on something that seems really unique, cool. Um, but just count on the fact that it's probably going to be mediocre. So let me let me piggyback on that real quick, Tim. A lot of what you're saying is is totally accurate. So Kickstarter ranges. It has these bloated, plasticky, untested games on one end of the spectrum. And there's a, so much garbage out there. And the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have games from Simon, Eric Lang, that are just, you know, they're going to be quality products when they come out. And then in the middle there, there's these tiny publishers trying to get noticed. There's these other publishers running scams. There's all kinds of just different stuff out there on Kickstarter. So part of the fun for me, I like to find these independent publishers that maybe they have a nice game that it's going to be worth my money to support and watch this project grow. I think that's what Kickstarter was kind of founded for. And if I can make like that, uh, and, well, crowdfunding, that was kind of what that was founded for. And if I can watch something like that, I, that's a fun process for me to watch it grow and, and come to fruition. Yeah, there is a lot of problems with it, but it's there. And I, and I found a game that looks pretty good. What do I want to say? Recently, I've heard some news too about Kickstarter. Their CEO stepped down and I heard they're backing away from the blockchain a little bit. Maybe this is all hearsay and speculation, which is what I like to dabble <laughs> in. But those are good signs yeah. in my well, book. Well, yeah, so the one last thing I wanted to mention is just that I want to step away from painting a broad brush and, and more just kind of lean towards, let, let's take a little bit of a cynical, um, well, I don't know, is that a critical eye on on Kickstarters and crowdfunding and think a little bit more about, should we be backing this? What's the risk and what's the potential reward here? I definitely look at it with a lot of skepticism when I look at Kickstarter games. And so for, for me, um, you know, there are two games when I said at the beginning of the year, I'm not going to back anything on crowdfunding. There are now two games that I've backed on Kickstarter this year. And for me, it's a pretty easy, obvious decision point. One of them was La Granja. It's a game that had already been published, and it was highly rated. We played it. We loved it. I've played it a dozen times since, and I've loved it. I cannot wait to own this game in my collection. And then the Kickstarter version was just going to be a nicer production. It was going to be a better version of what I already know I love. So that's a no-brainer. I know I'm not getting a mediocre product. It's possible it'll get delayed. It's possible that there'll be some production issues with it. We'll see on that. There's some risk there. But I think that that's a pretty safe bet. And anytime I've backed a game where it was a previously published game and I could listen to reviewers that I trusted, I had just as good of odds as buying a game that I could buy at my local game store and was trusted. So, you know, pretty good odds there. The game I'm going to talk about today is an unpublished game. It's never been published before. But I have a lot of confidence in it. This is a game called Motor City, and it's by the publisher Motor City Games. Now, Motor City is a game by a few designers that have been working together 
Ben Pinchback and Matt Riddle. I don't know the exact history, but I know that they founded Motor City Gameworks. And they have a history of creating really fantastic roll, heavy roll-and-write games. Two games that are high in my want-to-play list that I've heard nothing but good stuff about include Fleet the Dice Game and their most recent release, which just got delivered recently, was called Three Sisters. They look cool, they've got unique mechanisms to it, and they look like a blast to me. So they right now have on Kickstarter their third heavy roll-and-write game. They're calling it their loaded roll-and-writes called Motor City, and they've added another designer in this, uh, Adam Hill, who I think is part of Motor City Gameworks anyway, at least seems to, to collaborate with them a bit. But Adam Hill was the designer of Godspeed, which is a game that we have played and I've enjoyed a bit. So they designed this game called Motor City, and it is a looks like a significantly heavy roll-and-write looks very thematic. It's all about basically running a automobile manufacturing plant in the 60s. It looks cool. It's got a theme that works for me. Two other things that really stood out to me, the, the reason I actually decided to back it today was because when I actually looked into the mechanisms, it's got a dice drafting system that feels a lot like Legrand has dice drafting, which I love. Basically the idea that you roll this handful of dice, they get placed on some different actions, and then you take turns drafting one. But then it adds something that I love in games, which is that each of the dice goes on a different bonus when it's when it's on this board. So when you pull it off, you don't only get the main benefit like Legranha, you also get whatever bonus was printed on it. So you might have a motivation to pick a different um, dice, even if you don't want the main action because it's got a different bonus. So some really fun choices. And then after everyone's drafted their dice, there's one more action that everybody gets, whichever dice was left over. So really reminiscent of Legrand how to me, really, uh, you know, cool. It's like two sheets of paper that you're drawing on your, your manufacturing automobiles, you're selling them, you're do, running a test track, innovating, you're doing up upgrades. So all these little cool markers. And as you move to different places on these different little mini games, you get bonuses with them. Looks great great pedigree from these guys so i feel very confident that it, that they know what they're doing from the roll and write heavy roll and write um, mechanism perspective you know the one last thing i guess is that every roll and write i've gotten has been some of the best value i've ever had in board games these games i picked up rajas the ganges the dice charmers for 20 bucks and i've probably played 40 sheets out of that game so far had a blast every single time of it i played rolling realms right i played it six times so far i paid 13 dollars for that game I more than got my value for it, and I'm sure I'll be playing that more. I played Hadrian's Wall, which I played a half dozen games out of. Amazing, heavy game that comes in a little tiny box that I picked up for 30 bucks. that is basically sheets of paper and some wooden resources with it. So great value here. I know that if I even... If th this game is on Kickstarter for 29 bucks. If I get five or six games out of this, I'm going to get my value worth, and I expect to get a lot more than that. Welcome to is another great example. So every everything about this thing just said... What's the risk of backing it right now? You're going to enjoy five or six games out of it. You're going to get your value out of this. And it's probably something I'm going to love a lot more than just five or six games worth. What do you think of Motor City? I took a peek at it here. First of all, to your point about, you know, I love any kind of point about cash per hour of enjoyment. I think that's a fun, goofy metric to look at. But you're totally right with some of these rolling rights there. Next to nothing, and you can get hours of entertainment off of these things. I took a look at MotorWorks. Yeah, I want to play it. I would give me one of these sheets. Let's roll some dice. Let's do some check boxes on a piece of paper on a little Excel spreadsheet and make Chris <laughs> play it too, even though he hates spreadsheets. This game looks pretty fun, Tim. I like the uh, the theme, like you were saying, the Americana muscle cars looks pretty fun to me. That was my long explanation of why I backed down on my previous stance. 
I'm going to try to be a little more subtle with my response and not, not be so mean <laughs> about your Kickstarter back. So with all that said, Adam, let me judge you. What, what, what do you want to talk about that's out on crowdfunding right now? I am ready to be judged. The game I'm looking at, I've mentioned a few times, is Solar 175. So some red flags right away. It's described as an epic Euro-style legacy game for one to five players set in a dystopian sci-fi future. And epic is always kind of tough for me. Is it going to be epic? I'll decide if it's epic when I play it. Euro-style, yeah, resource management, I'm down with that. And then legacy game? I don't really have any legacy games, so that's got me thinking about it some. But one thing that drew me in right away was the artwork. We talked about what gets you fascinated by a game. In this case, it's the artwork for me. This has a separate book of lore like Anacrity does. Soul, Last Days of a Star has this little book that explains the lore of it. And it's neat. There's this, uh, you know, in your not too far distant future, something happened on Earth. There's a battle for resources. And all these corporations are kind of running the show these days. It has this mechanism where, kind of like Orleans, again, you're drawing workers from this bag and you're putting them out on these spaces, building towards an action. Some actions cost three workers, some cost two, and some cost only one. And once you're doing that, you're executing these actions. Maybe you're going to get a pilot and you can move your ship right as soon as you move a pilot and you can put it on one of these little spots in the solar system. So the solar system's there, which is bonus points for me. The player boards look neat. They're all recessed. Production looks amazing. I like all the little circular tokens. The board does look a little clunky the way you set it up with all these cards out there. They did that as part of the legacy aspect of it where you're going to flip some of these cards over. They have an A side and a B side. Yeah, Tim, I, I can already hear you. I can already hear what you're going to say. There's all this stuff going on. There's clunky clunks from an unproven designer. But I don't know. I've watched some of the videos with half of the design team. The gameplay looks amazing. She's so enthusiastic about it. It's an independent designer. I love that. It's something I don't mind putting my money towards. I could get burned or I could have a great time with it. Imperium the Contention. That was Gary's first game that he did. It was a risk I took. That game ended up being good. It's some board game Barrage has talked about. So very wrong about games. Loves that game. And it's just a fantastic game. It felt good. So yeah, I've, I've had some hits and I've had some misses with Kickstarter. But this is one I'm happy to put my money behind. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Let's hear your beefs, Tim, with Solar 175. Did you already back it? Yeah, I did back it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting call out. Like uh, Imperium the Contention is one of those games that seems to have been a diamond in the rough. I mean, I have yet to play it. Give you my own point of view on that at some point, hopefully. But mm -hmm. it looks interesting. Like it's got cool mechanisms. I agree that the board looks kind of cluttery and clunky. And, and the question, I guess, is, is this game actually, is it reusing stuff in a way like, is it the next Ark Nova where it's actually doing something really unique with some mechanisms we've seen before? You know, Orleon keeps getting mentioned uh, in the reviews here, or is it going to get lost? Is it is it just a mess that you'll play and just feel like, ah, oh, that was okay, and then move on? And, and that's a big risk with a first-time designer. The thing that actually raises my concerns a little bit more i think even the fact that it's a new designer you know it's a big production and that's that's risky you've got somebody that's published three games before and they have this huge legacy game which means a lot of content that probably still has to be designed and created they've got a lot of components are they going to have the manufacturing down is this going to be done you know anywhere near on time who knows but the top three reviewers on this campaign or the top three comments i guess are 
Becca Scott from Good Time Society, Mark Street from the Dice Tower, and Ryan Schoon from Man vs. Meeple. These are paid previewers. These are not people that played the game and are giving their honest input on it. Mm-hmm. And um, so you definitely don't have any kind of reliability as far as the people that are have left comments on this as to whether it's good or not. Now, you watched a gameplay video of it, and that's awesome. If it looks fun, then that's probably a really great indication. If they have an actual gameplay video where you're watching people play the game and getting to watch them make the decisions that they're making, and that still looks fun, then that's really cool. The game looks awesome, though, and I love legacy concepts. I mean, I hope this is an awesome game. And if you, if you ever get it and we get a chance to play together, I, I would love to. But yeah, it definitely, you know, it's it's definitely one that you told me about it, and I looked it up, and I was like, Nope. So many possibilities for this to, <laughs> to go wrong. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's probably a game that you get it and it's uh, full of Kickstarter exclusives or something that's not published. Someone will probably buy it from you. So it's not that really that big of a risk if you want to do that. Yeah. I No, I recognize that it is a risk and and I'm okay with yeah. that. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. It could be great. It could be a bust. This is, uh, did you buy the retail or the, you, brought, you bought the deluxe edition, right? I want deluxe, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all in deluxe pledge is like 93 pounds. What is that, about $110 or something like that? 110 bucks, something yeah, like that. That's yeah. not too bad for a big game with custom trays and metal coins and lots of minis. Yeah, we'll see. Well, I hope it's awesome, man. Yeah, check those games out. If um, if you've been interested in checking out some games that are out on Kickstarter right now, um, let us know what you think. Uh, if, if any of you backed them and you have feedback into why we should or should drop our pledges. Both of these games, I think the um, the campaign's just a few days after this episode drops, but they usually offer late pledges, so if you don't hear this until after the campaign is closed, you can probably either pre-order them from their websites or do a late pledge or something like that. But anyway, lots of cool stuff being designed and developed, and hopefully we end up with some, some exciting new things that uh, stick around for a while. All right, cool. Well, thanks, Adam, for hanging out, and thanks for coming out on Tuesday. That was a great time. Um, if you enjoy the show, hang out. Follow us on Twitter at BG underscore Hot Takes. We'd love if you gave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Until next week, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.